0: Thank you, Brother Dale. Well, here we are starting off 2024. Can you believe it? Time flies when you're having fun. And uh, I hope you're enjoying your year so far. (laughs) I know it's only January the 3rd. but uh, And I also know, too, after the holidays, everybody's tired. And uh, we pray that the Lord will refresh you and uh, as... We move on through the year that he'll re-energize you and strengthen you. I hope you had a good Christmas and hope you uh, had a good holiday, uh, New Year's Day, that type of thing, and watched a lot of football and ate a lot of junk food and all of those kind of things, and hope you also recover from it as well. Uh, Sammy's not here tonight. She started feeling sick, and uh, she... Was going to go to the doctor the other day, knowing that he would want a COVID test. She tested positive, so uh, we appreciate your prayers for her, and I would appreciate appreciate your prayers for me as well, and uh, pray that the Lord uh, sees her through all of this. And uh, so uh, tonight, I want you to think about something. Turn to Psalm 24. That's where we're going to pick up tonight. And uh, the title of what we're talking about tonight is, Oh, Worship the King. And back in the, I think it was the 1740s, Handel wrote his great musical, The Messiah. And uh, you uh, have probably heard that or heard certain songs and selections out of it. I was in a choir one time that did the whole thing. It's like a three-hour presentation, uh, very long, but... um, Everybody knows the Hallelujah Chorus. And, uh, and he shall reign forever and ever. Those wonderful words in it. And when uh, it was presented the first time, King George II was in the audience. And when they started singing that Hallelujah Chorus and that part about he shall reign forever and ever, the king stood up in homage to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why if you're ever in a presentation of Handel's Messiah, everybody stands when the Hallelujah Chorus is performed because the king set the pace because he knew that there was a greater king than he and there's one who wore more than just one crown, the king of all kings, the lord of all lords, the one who is crowned with, as we sang just uh, a moment ago, crowned with many crowns, the king that outshines them all and the king that outreigns and overrules every king that has ever lived and every one that ever will live. And I think sometimes we become so familiar singing the songs, hearing the messages, reading the verses, that we forget about the splendor of the king that we serve. And certainly, as we think about his heritage being a descendant of David, we think about him being the rightful and true king of Israel who deserves the throne even today and one day will reign and rule and reign from Jerusalem and uh, Israel will be restored to the place that God had promised Abraham and David and others that it would be, and Christ will indeed be the king. But let's not forget that today it's also true that he is ruling and reigning from the right hand of his father. He's ruling and reigning in those of us who know him. As we read his word, as we obey his word, as our lives are being conformed, to his image, and as we uh, are living sacrifices being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And while we may look around and see a world that is in rebellion, and that is certainly true, and a world that is groaning, the book of Romans says, under the weight of the curse of sin that was brought about by Adam. Uh, so many years ago in the garden, we know that there is a day coming when the curse is going to be lifted and we will see Jesus in his rightful place, honored and adored, glorified and obeyed. And so uh, tonight we want to have a little taste, a little foretaste. Um, Sometimes when you go into some of these ice cream places, especially gelato-type places, and you go in there and you see a flavor you're not real sure about, can I try the um, orange juice and toothpaste flavor here? And uh, you know what they'll do? They'll give you a little taste, and you can take that and shudder and go, no, I don't want that, I'll, I'll try something else. And every once in a while, God, through His Word, gives us... It's not orange juice and toothpaste, but he gives us a foretaste of glory, a foretaste of the future, and uh, we kind of get that tonight as we think about who our king is. So let's start reading at Psalm 24, and let's begin at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's. There's a big statement for you. Everybody thinks the earth belongs to us and the earth belongs to governments and the earth belongs to different people groups and those type of things. No, the earth is the Lord's. He's never relinquished the title deed. And all its fullness, that means everything that it supports, birds, sky, the atmosphere, oxygen, outer space, Um, everything that has to do with the earth, the animals, the vegetation, the weather, all of those things and all its fullness. The world and all those who dwell therein. Verse 2. Why? For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? What's the hill of the Lord? Uh, In my mind, it's Jerusalem. It's where the temple is. Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And just before he slit Isaac's throat, the angel stopped him. And then there was a ram caught in the thicket and they sacrifice the ram instead. Mount Moriah where the temple sat when Solomon built it uh, later on and the place where today the mosque, the Dome of the Rock that you see in pictures of Jerusalem, that's the place that I think he's talking about. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Could also be a picture of heaven. Some people think that. Uh, Can't really dispute that. And he goes on to say, or who may stand in his holy place, or in the place that is holiest of all? Not just anybody, not just anybody who wants to or thinks that they might be able to, and he tells us why that is. Verse 4 says, it answers the question, who may stand in his holy place? Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Any, Any takers? Because when we think about that, we think about how we fall short, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we have an impure heart, and we also, as a result of the impurity of our heart, our nature, we also have dirty hands. We get our hands into things they shouldn't be in, and so uh, we wouldn't dare uh, go into the Holy of Holies if the temple were standing today, and neither would David or anyone else. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. Can we actually say that we have perfectly, honestly, authentically, and um, consistently worshipped God? Maybe we've never physically bowed down to an idol, but we haven't been all that either. Nor sworn deceitfully. Are all of our relationships, all of our promises, have they all been kept? Have we been forthright with other people? Think about that. Nor sworn deceitfully. Verse 5. This person who has done all of these things shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. It's the only place we're going to get it, by the way. We can't get it from church. We can't get it from rituals. We can't get it from trying harder or doing better. It has to come from God. Verse 6. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Selah. Stop and think about that. Verse 7. Then he seems to change just a little bit. Lift up your heads... O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. That means the Lord who has mighty armies, victorious armies. He is the king of glory. And again, we get another Selah. Think about that. So in this beautiful and wonderful hymn that David has written for us, we find some things that will bless us, strengthen us, encourage us, lift up our soul. It's beautiful poetry, and yet it also is the word of God who has timeless truth. So think about this. Number one, the ultimate declaration, and that's found in verse 1. And what does he say? Right off the bat, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and all who dwell therein. Now, you'll find as you read through your Bible that creation is very, very important to the Lord. It's important that we know about creation, and it's important that we recognize Him As our creator. In Psalm 100. The one you know that says. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. It's what every choir says before they sing. I'm just making a joyful noise to the Lord. And bad soloists usually say that before they sing. God didn't tell us to sing well. Just to make a joyful noise. And it actually means make a joyful shout. A shout of victory. A shout of praise unto the Lord. And it goes on to say that we are to serve the Lord and we're to serve Him, not with reluctance and and not with a a downcast, well, if I have to type thing, but serve the Lord with gladness, it says in that psalm, and uh, all that we do. But it also says that we are His children and we are the sheep of His pasture. And it says, He has made us and not we ourselves. Now, I don't think that back in the days of the Psalms and the Hebrews, I uh, certainly don't think they had ever read Darwin's Origin of the Species, and they didn't have a theory of evolution like uh, we have today in our culture. But there still was the idea that somehow we did this. Somehow we accomplished this. Somehow we have our fingerprints on everything that's going on in the world, man always wants to exalt himself, and they and wants to be something bigger than what he or she really is. And so, the idea of creation, I uh, did some checking today. It's not exhaustive, so I don't think this is the total number. But I saw at least, so hear that at least 58 verses in the Bible that make some sort of reference to creation. In other words, that is on the heart of God, that he be worshiped and praised and honored as our creator. And I want you to think about some things. What does it mean if you are the creator of something? Well, I remember hearing a story years ago about a little boy. A little boy made a boat. He took some wood and made a boat, painted it up, put his initials on the boat And it had a little sail and everything. It had a string so he could uh, keep the boat, keep control of the boat. And he went to a, a stream or a creek or something like that. And apparently it had just rained and so there was more water. And the water was moving and it was flowing. And he put his boat in there and you know what? The boat floated. But the current was too strong for the string that he had. And the string broke. And the boat began to go downstream, of course, and the little boy tried to run after it, but he couldn't keep up with the flow of the current. The little boy was kind of sad because he'd put a lot of time and effort in on that boat. And one day, at a later time, he was in their little town, and he walked by the toy store. And when he walked by the toy store, he always liked to look in the window and see uh, what the toy maker had for sale. And lo and behold, what did he see? his boat. It was right there in the window. And he went in there and he picked up the boat and he uh, asked the man who owned the store how much for the boat and the man said it'll be a dollar and the little boy had saved up money and he just happened to have a dollar and he gave it to him and the toy maker gave him the boat and the little boy ran outside and he hugged the boat to himself to his chest and he said, oh, little boat, little boat, you're mine, you're mine. I made you, and I paid for you, and I'm never going to let you go. Do you see a picture in that? It's what the Lord says to us. I made you, and through the blood of Jesus, I paid for you, and we are marked off, sealed under the day of redemption, like that little boy had put the, his initials on that boat, marked off for himself. We are marked off for the Lord, and He is our Maker. And the world is in rebellion toward Him today. They want to deny His existence. They want to deny His morality. They want to deny His Word. They want to deny His grace and mercy and the salvation that He brings through the Lord Jesus Christ. They want to throw all of that away, and they want to be kings themselves And so people are warring today over land and over oil and over gold and silver and all kinds of things today because they want to be kings for themselves. And yet there is one king and that is the one who has created us, the one that has made us and the one that has sent his son to uh, be the savior of all who put their trust in him. So when we think about Why creation should matter. Creation is intertwined together with ownership. You own the things that you actually make. And God says, this earth and everything in it, everything on it, everything it produces is mine. And I should receive the glory for that. Next time you fill up your car, while you're pumping gas into it, while it's going on, give God thanks for that gasoline because he made the oil that's in the earth. He gave people the wisdom to be able to refine it, to be able to transport it and get it in there to the, to the pumps. Think about the electricity it takes to run the pumps. Think about the roads that it takes to deliver that. Think about the people that take that and actually put it in the tanks at your gas station. A lot of people were involved just to fill up your car and you don't give it a second thought. Well, you should. Because all of that comes from the Lord. You think about creation and you think about power. A God who could say, let there be light. And as soon as that happens, the scripture says, and there was light. You can't do that. I can't do that. Collectively, all in the world, we couldn't do that. But God can. And when we think about his creative power, how he made everything... Well, we might adapt things and we might take certain... that We can take some wood and uh, we can get kindling together and light a match and maybe build a fire. See, I made light. But you didn't make it out of nothing. When you think about the creative power of God, two Latin words, ex nihilo, come to mind. And that means out of nothing. God had nothing to work with, nothing that he used except the word of his power. Let there be light, and light had no choice but to shine because God had commanded it. This is the power of the God that we serve. And think about this creation and the right to rule. Why does he have the right over our lives, over our eternal destiny, and all of that? Because he has made us. He has the right to. To rule. I want you to think when you look at verse 2 out of this, the ultimate power says, For he has founded it upon the seas. And he's not speaking literally here, this is just a poetic way. You remember in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, and uh, then God created the earth out of the chaos that was there. And it says, For he has founded it upon the seas. Uh, The same idea there, and established it upon the waters. So uh, there was a member of Congress uh, a few years ago that said that they were kind of concerned about our American base in Guam, the island of Guam. We acquired that after World War II. We have a a lot of military presence there. And every time my dad would go overseas, especially going to Vietnam, they would land on Guam. And this congressman said, we need to be careful if we build too much and have too many people on there, the island may tip over. And these kind of people are making laws. Crazy, isn't it? You know, when you think about the islands and you think about the continents and you think about all of them, the earth is mostly water. And yet God has made the places where we can live, where we can inhabit, and uh, the dry land appeared, and it supports life. All of this shows the power of God. You couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. No one else could do this. But God is the one who, out of the seas, the Bible says, He made the dry land appear. That must have been some earthquake. That must have been amazing Whenever that happened. Think about after Noah's flood. And think about when the waters receded. And the dry land appeared. And the mountains were formed. And all of those kind of things. This is the power of the God that uh, we serve. And it's ultimate power. Nothing else can even match it. I think about Colossians 1 verse 17. Paul says... He, meaning God, is before all things, and in him all things, and and, uh, this is an accurate translation of the Greek word, all things hold together, hold together. And I want you to think about why it is that when you look at the solar system that we're in, the galaxy that we're in, why is it that life has been able to be sustained for all of these years on earth and the earth hasn't gone crashing into Mercury or anything else? It's not too close to the sun to where we would burn up. It's not too far away from the sun to where we would freeze. We have gravity. We have the right atmosphere. All of these years after years after years generation after generation after generation we're still living surviving and even thriving it's amazing the resources that we have it's amazing what the earth can produce it's amazing what god has given us in this world and why does it all hold together why doesn't it fly apart Why doesn't the earth spin too fast or too slow or any number of other things? It's because God is actively controlling everything in the universe and everything in our world. The deists would say that God was like a clockmaker who made the clock and then wound it up and then walked away and let it run. Not so, according to the Bible. God is in perfect control of all of these things because He has the knowledge, the power, the ability to do all of these things. And yet we find ways to just think it's normal. It's just Mother Nature. It's just one of those things. No, it is God and we should praise Him. But in Psalm uh, chapter 8, the 8th Psalm, in verses 3 through 5, notice what David says. When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. Okay, He says, I'm looking around. I'm paying attention. I would encourage you to go for a walk. I would encourage you to get out into nature. You you need it. You need the exercise. But you also need other things as well. When you're outside, you feel the chill of the wind this time of year. When you are outside, you may go out early in the morning and uh, you know the sun kind of rises a little late and uh, you may get to watch the sun come up and it comes up in the east just like it did for your ancestors, just like it did in the days of Adam and Eve and it's amazing that it does that and it is beautiful when the sun comes up. It's amazing when you may see a stray dog run past, you may hear birds singing, you may see a squirrel or two. Uh, Different things happen like that. And as you do that, you watch over time the seasons change. Oh, it's cold and everything looks pretty dead right now, but it's not. It won't be but a matter of really weeks before things start warming up a little bit. And then you start seeing the grass start turning green again. And you start seeing the trees bud out again. And uh, when they do, you know, beautiful foliage, all of that. Think about the rains that come in time to feed cattle in the pastures, which we need. The rain that comes to grow the wheat that we grind into flour to make our bread. All of that comes from God. And David says in Psalm 8, maybe he was with the sheep when he wrote this. Maybe he was laying down at night when he had put the sheep down and he was looking up at the stars. Maybe he saw a shooting star. Maybe he saw the constellations, the same one you can look up. Maybe it was something else. I don't know. But David is just in awe of the nature that he was experiencing that was created and maintained by God. And he's overwhelmed by it. And I don't want to stop right where we stopped. He said, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. And then he says this. This is a good question for us. Whenever you're out walking, whenever you see anything that is happening outside, you need to think about this. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him With glory and honor. Can you imagine? Why is it that humans build hospitals and dolphins don't? It's not a fluke of evolution. It's because we were made in the image, in the likeness of God. And nobody really recognizes that much. Nobody talks much about that or thinks much about that. In fact, most of the world thinks that we are here by a fluke, a mutation, or something like that. We're just lucky. We're a lucky cosmic accident. And uh, we can do things that the animals can't do because we are more highly evolved than they are. David would say, no, no. It's because you made us and you created us in your image. And you have given human beings wisdom beyond all other creation. And you've even given us dominion over this planet. Dominion over the animals on land, the fish of the sea. and a Dominion over agriculture. All of these kind of things. When my grandfather was born in 1910... They didn't even dream about people really flying for any particular purpose. Oh, they might have had, I'm not exactly sure when the Wright brothers did their thing. It was somewhere around that time, maybe a little later, maybe a little before, I don't remember. But they certainly never thought about any of the jet aircraft that we have now. They never really thought about flight. Carrying hundreds of people across oceans to other continents in a matter of hours, never dawned on them that flight that air planes could be used for anything like that it wasn 't until World War I that they began to use them to fight uh, think of Snoopy and his sopwith camel and uh, think about all of those things that they did that 's when they first started dropping bombs, those kind of things. Pretty primitive compared even to World War II. But think about how everything is advanced. In other words, when my grandfather was born in northwest Arkansas in 1910, there probably were hardly any cars, any automobiles there. They did have horses, they did have buggies, and they would hitch up mules to their plows and those kind of things. By the time he passed away... In 1998, we had landed on the moon. We had all kinds of satellites up in the air. Personal computers were sitting in people's homes and on their desks. And uh, he could take an uh, airliner to anywhere in the world and get there in a matter of hours. What a change from 1910 to 1998. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about the fact that if you get on your computer tonight and you uh, go to YouTube and you start watching uh, nature videos, big cats or something like that, how much has a lion's life changed and his existence changed from 1910 to 1998? Zero. How has a monkey's life in the wild how has it changed? oh I know we could take and domesticate some and make their life a little better but basically a wild dog or a domesticated dog is still pretty much a dog they run by instincts and we call them our babies, our fur babies and we think of them and we think of them almost like being children and everything but they're not they're dogs they act like dogs they're motivated like dogs They think like dogs, and their instincts are still pretty much a dog's. You think about what the Bible says, a dog returns to its vomit. I don't care who you are, you can't change that. A pig goes out and wallows in the mire. And I don't care how much you dress up the pig, clean up the pig, put lipstick on a pig, it won't change anything, will it? If you go and you check out things, how much has a dolphin's life changed in all of these thousands of years that humans have been on the earth? None. And yet, look at humanity. How much different is your life than Adam and Eve's? How different is your life than Abraham's or Moses? How different is your life even than your grandparents or your great-grandparents. Think about all of that. I don't think that the car that Sammy and I drive, I don't think that even my grandpa could have even imagined the technology in that car. Why is it that we advance And nature stays the same. God has given us dominion over all that he has made. And we have wisdom. You'll never see dolphins are supposed to be nearly as smart as humans. But they don't do open heart surgery on each other. Right? Think about all of that. This is by the design of God. And yet, as David looked around, and even in his time, primitive by our standards, but high-tech for his, he looked around at nature, and he said, Wow, what in the world is this that you have made that we enjoy? And yet, you give your word to us. God didn't give His word to monkeys. God didn't give His word to dogs or cats or dolphins or anything else like that. He gave it to humans. Do we deserve it? No. Only by His grace. And every lost person tonight is a beneficiary of the grace of God, the wisdom in medical science and all of the Technology that we enjoy and all of the things that we have in transportation and all of that. Think of it. Lost people get the benefit of all of that. And so always remember that in this life, this is as close to hell as you, believer, are ever going to get. But all of the people who are lost, who are never going to be saved, this is as close to heaven as they will ever get. Have some compassion on them. And David says, what is man that you're mindful of him? All we are are a bunch of rebels, a bunch of sinners. We commit high treason against the God who made us. And he goes, and the son of man that you visit him. It's amazing that God would come to us. I believe that's speaking in reference to the prophecy of God himself. We just celebrated it at Christmas, being incarnated putting on flesh and coming among us. Why would God do that? We are the most stubborn, rebellious, wicked, sinful part of creation. Everything else does what it's pretty much supposed to do. Even the heavens declare the glory of God. And here we are, the pinnacle of creation and we sure don't. We're trying to find a way out, a way uh, a, a way that is away from God and uh, trying to live life without Him. And here we are. We're a little lower than the angels for the time being and crowned with glory and honor. Why? That ought to make you want to worship the Lord. And so no wonder creation is always under fire. There's always a theory. There's always a god or a goddess. There's always a mythology that always takes away God's glory in creation. That is not by accident. That is something stressed in Scripture, and that is something that the enemy understands. If you ever see God as your creator, then you will come closer to worshiping Him. You'll be moving in the right direction, and he hates that. Number three. Now we come to what I've entitled the ultimate question. Who may ascend... Into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place. Now, there are two basic views about what this is uh, talking about. Uh, One of them is that this is the time when the Ark of the Covenant is being brought back into Jerusalem, and the Hebrews saw the Ark of the Covenant as the presence of God. And so as they are walking in with the ark on those poles on the shoulders of the priest, they say, open wide ancient gates and let the king of glory in. And to them, the presence of the ark was like the presence of God. And they thought like that because David's predecessor, King Saul, you remember when he's at war with the Philistines, they're losing the battle and Saul goes, go get the ark of the covenant. And all he thought of it, it it's going to be like a good luck charm. If we had the ark and it's here in the battle, God won't let us be defeated because he doesn't want the ark to be captured. Boy, did God ever have a surprise for Saul. So the ark is captured and God punishes the Philistines uh, for that. And they finally get to the point to where they say, we've had enough. We don't want this God of the Israelites here with us anymore. They didn't know what it was, and so they put it on a cart and they took it to the border and uh, then they let it go. And you remember that uh, in Second Samuel, I believe it's the second, uh, the seventh chapter, that uh, Uzzah, while they are going along with the ark, the ark, the oxen stumble and the ark's about to fall off, and he's going to do God a favor and protect the ark. He touches it, and he dies. Well, it made David mad. You say, why did he do that? If you remember back in our study in Exodus, when they made the ark, Moses told them what God said about the, how the ark is supposed to be carried. Not on a cart, not pulled by oxen. It's supposed to be on poles that go through the rings of the box, and carried on the shoulders of the priests. He said, well, why didn't he kill the Philistines for doing it? You'll find that in so many ways, God is lenient toward the lost. But he expects his own people to obey him. And so God did not expect for David to say, hey, we can do what the Philistines do. A lot of churches now are looking at the world and saying, hey, we can do what they do. And God's not going to bless that. And that's why we have so many people that have um, so many big churches, but so little impact on society. We're not doing things God's way. And so finally, David got over being upset with God. He was king by this point. Uh, Saul had been killed. And so they finally are to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And this time they do it right. And one view and understanding of this is this is the time when the Ark of the Covenant is being brought back into the city of God, Jerusalem. And there where the tabernacle was, the temple had not been built yet, but it was going to be put back in its rightful place in that tabernacle that Moses had built all those years before. And they are celebrating and they are ecstatic. And they are so happy. The Ark of the Covenant that was built by our ancestors in the wilderness uh, before we came into the Promised Land. It's being brought back. What a great thing that was. And so they said, open wide, ancient gates. Let the King of Glory in. And they were celebrating about all of that. So what was the second view? Well, the early church, they thought this was a picture of the ascension of Christ. And I want you to think about Jesus Christ dying on the cross, being placed in a tomb, and then three days later being raised from the dead. And for 40 days he was with the disciples and then they went out and they went to the Mount of Olives and while they are there with the Lord Jesus a strange thing happens. Remember? He starts going up and they're watching and they're watch- they'd never seen anything like that. In a day where there was no space flight, when there was no uh, airplane, nothing like that at all, they were watching him go up on his own power. And you remember an angel came to them and said, Men of Galilee, why are you staring up into heaven? This same Jesus, the same Jesus, will come back in like manner one of these days. I can't wait for that day, can you? Man, that's going to be amazing. And can you imagine, though, what we don't know is what happened when he got out of sight. Can you imagine as Jesus traveled through the Milky Way, past the stars, past the planets, into finally that heaven that he had left when he stepped into the womb of the Virgin Mary 33 years before? And can you imagine as the angels snap to attention? Can you imagine, can you even begin to imagine the music that was playing, the trumpets that were sounding? The king is coming home. Mission accomplished in victory. The one who is mighty in battle, the commanding general is coming back home. I want you to picture as he gets close to those gates of pearl, and maybe an angel says open wide ancient gates and let the king of glory in and maybe ceremonially there's an angel at the gate who says who is this king of glory and then in triumph they shout together the lord mighty in battle the Lord of hosts the victor has come in and can you imagine as those gates swing open and as heaven erupts in praise and honor and glory as the king steps on those golden streets and as he walks to the throne and his father says sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool can you get the picture open wide ancient gates which one is right i don't know i like both of them whether it's the ark returning to jerusalem to its rightful place in the tabernacle or whether it is a picture of our lord victoriously entering heaven i like both of them i think it's a neat picture and a neat thing for us to think about and so here uh, this is just a a sign of victory And it's something to celebrate. It's something to be excited about. And if you think about the ark coming into Jerusalem, only a certain few people, the high priest, could have anything to do with the ark or even touch the ark. And when you think about going into heaven, only a certain few people are going to be allowed to go into heaven. But none of it is going to be because of anybody's own righteousness or accomplishments, because the Bible gives us this idea here of victory and a power and a place that we want to be. We want to be where the Lord is. Now, think about this. Humans instinctively know that not everyone goes to heaven. You can even talk to somebody who's a universalist. Oh, I think a loving God's going to bring everybody in. Would that include Hitler? Uh, Well, yeah, maybe not him. Would that include the person that murdered your family member? Uh, No, I hope they rot in hell and all of that. They instinctively know that not everybody should be allowed into heaven. The problem is they all think that they will be the one who will be allowed in. There's somebody worse than me. There's somebody who's done so many bad things. I'll get in, but they certainly won't. And we compare ourselves To everyone else. Kind of like the Pharisee in the temple. Who says I thank you. That I'm not as other men are. What an arrogant statement. For that Pharisee to make. And that's the problem. That we have in the world today. They know I'm not perfect. But I'm not all that bad. And I'm not as bad as you. I'm not as bad as you. I'm not as bad as them. And they think that's going to be enough. To get them into heaven. So who is worthy to be in the presence of the Lord. And he answers it. Number four, and we'll end with this, the ultimate dilemma. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, Selah. In other words, when we read that, we have a dilemma, and what is that dilemma? No one qualifies. There's not a one of us that have clean hands, a pure heart, that have no idols, in other words, perfect worship of God, and we don't swear deceitfully. In other words, we have perfect fellowship and relationships with all human beings. All of us are guilty in one of those areas. So what hope do we have to go to heaven? And this is what David is writing about. And uh, I think about Romans chapter 3, which is actually, Paul says, as it is written, and he's making reference to Psalm 14:1 through 3. Listen to this. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. we got a problem. If the only people that are going to heaven are those who have clean hands or pure heart and have never uh, failed to worship God and are right in all of their relationships because they've never sworn deceitfully. In other words, they love God with all their heart and they love their neighbor as they, lo- as they love themselves. And God says, let's settle it. I looked, the all-knowing one looked down from heaven and nobody, nobody nobody qualifies. Then what is our hope? Well, if we go back to Psalm 24, verse 5 is our hope. He shall receive blessing from the Lord. Look at this. And righteousness from the God of His salvation. In other words... The qualification, God says, you've got to have this. And then God says, I'll send my son who will perform this on your behalf so that if you will trust in him... You will be seen as he is seen. Can you imagine with that picture we painted of Jesus after the ascension coming into heaven? Can you even begin to imagine the joy and the thrill and the celebration and the honor and the welcome that Jesus received? And You know what? I've got good news for you. Because you have trusted Christ, because you have received his righteousness, in God's eyes you have clean hands. You have a pure heart. You have never worshipped an idol because you have the righteousness of Christ. You're found in Him, Paul says. And guess what? When it's your time to go to heaven, you will be as welcome into heaven as Jesus was welcomed into heaven because you are in Him and He is in you and you have His righteousness on the record book of your life oh worship the king all glorious above remember that old hymn and gratefully sing his wonderful love our shield and defender the ancient of days pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise and that's the king who made you who loves you who has redeemed you And accepts you into heaven on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for you. On the cross and through his resurrection. Praise his holy name. That is security. No amens? You need to think about that. So Psalm 24 gives us the command and the ability to worship God. Not to be apathetic, not to be passive, but to think he did that for you. And he didn't even have to. What a great, powerful, wonderful God we serve. And will he be able to perform everything he's promised? Yes. He's the one that made this universe with a word. He's the one that made the earth with a word. He's the one that controls everything on the earth. He's the one that made you. And He's the one that has given you His righteousness. And that will never fail. Father, we come before You tonight because we don't worship You enough. We don't worship You the way You deserve. In fact, Lord, just to be honest, we can't. As we live as sinners in a sinful world, we find ourselves so limited. We get excited about touchdowns but we don't get very excited about Jesus. We get excited about money that we can't take with us, but we don't get excited about the blessings and the riches that we have in Christ. Please forgive us. And we look forward to the day when we are with you because then we know that the straitjacket jacket of our humanity will be taken off. We'll have a glorified body and we'll be able to praise you the way you deserve To be praised for eternity. So give us a glimpse tonight. Of who you are. Your power. Your wonderful grace. And thank you Lord that you don't just say do your best. And hope that it's good enough. You actually sent your son to live the perfect life. And then you took his record book of perfection. And put it on our account. And put our sin on your son When he was hanging on the cross. Thank you for that Lord. Because I don't know why you did that. What is man that thou art mindful of him. Or the son of man. That you would visit him. Thank you Lord that you did. And all through Christ. We have the victory. Oh worship the king. Grant it Lord. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.